This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. What's up, everybody? My name is Brian Sir with Insider Bergs. Happy to have you join us for another episode of MC Fireside Chats. Hopefully you can hear me okay, because I decided to do something crazy again and stand outside with my phone on a new tripod that I just got. So we'll see how this show goes. But super excited to have a couple of awesome guests with us today. We're going to turn the third week of each month into kind of a campground owner show, where we're going to have some campground owners and people who speak regularly to campground owners talk about what's on their minds at this time of year, what's going through their heads, what they're thinking about. Uh, what's changed in the industry and hasn't changed in the industry for them to get their perspective uh, and do a different thing every uh, three week or every third week or so. So Heather Blankenship is going to be one of our regular panelists here. She uh, owns the Pigeon Forge Jellystone Park, among 40 other things that she does on a regular basis. We got Joe Dumag, who owns At My Community. Uh, they regularly travel around uh, in their RV, him and his wife Rose, their kids, stuff like that. So they interact with a lot of park owners doing apps and app development, things like that. We've got Kevin Long from The Dirt. He's not going to be a regular panelist with us. Uh, book this kind of show in advance before we knew what direction we wanted to go in with it. But we're super excited to have him on here to talk about just uh, the dirt and some of the things they're doing in the industry, uh, how you guys can benefit as campground owners. And then obviously we've got Angela Hilton, the editor-in-chief of Modern Campground. Kara could not join us today. And then we have uh, hopefully Gary Quigley, Thomas Sparrow, and maybe a couple other owners who will be joining us too as well. Thomas is at the Florida RV Show and Gary is in jury duty, which does not sound nearly as fun as being on a show. But, uh, he's doing his duty, so we're really proud of him for that civic thing. And you can see my camera's kind of going all crazy around here. It was sick. So Angela, where do you want to start today? I know Kevin is, is probably, I don't know if I want to call him our featured guest. I don't want to slight yeah. Heather, and Joe, but uh, we're super excited to have him here for the first time. Yeah, I would love to start. The, I'd love to start with Kevin and hear about what you guys have going on at the dirt to learn about your recent funding to expand your team and all the cool things you guys have going on. So yeah, I'd love to kick it off with you. Sure. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting to be here. Um, again, I'm Kevin from the, the Dirt is the top ranked camping app in both the iOS and Google Play app stores. We get about 30 million visits a year. Every one second, a different camper comes to our platform. How did the Dirt get to be so popular? What we did is we went out and said, let's go crowdsource the most pictures, videos, and reviews of campgrounds. So what we did is we did that. We now have millions and millions of user submitted pictures, videos, reviews, and tips from campers across the U.S. on the largest database of campgrounds. And on the dirt, you have all the public campgrounds, all the private campgrounds, all the private land campgrounds, and the most pictures, videos, and reviews. So as a user trying to make that important decision of where do we go for this weekend or where do we go for month, you can pull up the dirt, either the website or the mobile app and actually see pictures, videos, and reviews of all the campgrounds in the U.S. submitted by users. And that's a little bit about The Dirt. We are a remote company originally based in Portland, Oregon, and we have 40 staff. We just closed a round of $11 million, which is very exciting, and we're currently doubling the size of our company. That's a little bit. Kevin, I know we're going to talk far more about The Dirt and more important things, but when you say originally started in Portland, did you move? Did you relocate? Because I love Portland. It's one of my favorite cities. 
Yeah, we love Portland. The thing that's weird is two years ago, we closed down our offices and we thought it was going to be for three weeks and everybody yep. would work from home. And then we had the most productive year in the history of the dirt. Our traffic exploded. Our entire platform of traffic doubled more than a hundred percent. Our revenue tripled. And what we realized is we're not going to renew our office lease. So when I say that we have people working in all time zones across the U.S. No, I completely agree with that sentiment. We're the same way. I know Heather's got a large team that's spread out across the states at least, and probably farther than that too. And yeah, I completely understand that. And before we get to the more important things, one more thing, I think I own that same lamp that's behind you, your shoulder. Oh, really? Years ago, but Daniel really just needs to take over the show because we're not being productive at all. <laughs> hey, just one more thing to put out there. And as far as us doubling, the dirt does have over a dozen jobs open on our job board right now. We're looking for people who love camping from development to design across the world and you can work from Let's start here. So Heather, from your perspective as a park owner, how do you see or view the dirt? Have you come across it? Do you deal with it? Do you, you have campers that tell you they found you through the dirt? How does that come across as a, from a park owner's perspective? First of all, my first introduction to the dirt was at a conference and they're so great at marketing, which you can tell that from, uh, they're the way they got started with having all of the photos, because if you have any involvement in social media, those great photo ops blow up and you get, uh, I don't want to call it free attention, but it's going to be the cheapest form of marketing that you're going to get. So they're fabulous at marketing. And my first introduction to them was at a conference and they had this really awesome camper van that looked like it could go off-road anywhere. And my daughter, who is going to be 10 years old next week, was at the conference with me. And she had already seen some YouTube videos of camper vans. And she's convinced that instead of a house, she's going to live in a camper van. <laughs> and so we get to the conference and the first thing she picks out is Kevin's van. And she's, I've got to go see this van. So that was my first introduction to the dirt was his van. Perfect That's for a conference. Yeah. Heather, we just spent six months in that 19 foot Revel van. Sarah, my wife and co-founder traveling across the U.S. And part of that travel was... We're not going to set up a booth at that conference. We're going to roll in the dirt mobile and play it right out of there. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's interesting that you say that. I just did quite a few months in a 25 foot Airstream with three children. Ooh. So very similar, 7,000 miles. So probably a similar trip, only a couple extra people. <laughs> yeah. And pretty nice. I would love to look inside of that Airstream. Those things are unbelievable. Yeah, they're super nice. They're great for social media and photo opportunities, but I'm going to go with Joe over there in the 40 foot motorhome or fifth wheel when you've got a family is so much better. It will yeah. the I'd like, I'd love Joe, Joe to talk about the per, per square foot capita of what <laughs> he lived in versus what you and Adele. Were. Yeah. <laughs> so we just did four months with eight of us in a 40 foot class A toy hauler. And things you didn't know about, we bought the toy hauler right before we left on our trip and we didn't realize is how we would end up using one of the, we used the garage as a lunchroom. So the kids walk in, we tried to keep, we were on the border or on the coast a lot. So we tried to keep the sand in the garage. Didn't really work too well, but it worked a lot better than it would have without the garage. So we had two entrances and it was a great trip. We did also about 7,500 miles like <laughs> Um, we stayed about with 20 of our customers and got to see them and exactly what they're doing with our app and in their app store and around their park. So, so yeah, it was a, it was a great trip. 
And it's nice to see how many people in the community now are starting to do stuff like that. Kevin, two years ago, you probably wouldn't have even considered that because you were, had a business to run in Portland. You couldn't go and do that. Totally. That's something that I think is interesting that we've seen the shift of post-COVID of offices choosing not to return back into the office or making it optional, allowing more people to work remotely with that flexibility. And it's interesting that different outdoor recreation companies were encouraging their teams to travel and explore and use their products or visit their clients and things like that, but also requiring them to sit nine to five, Monday through Friday in an office and now allowing them to have that freedom to get their work done, but simultaneously travel and enjoy the things that the very things that they're promoting for the companies that they're working for, I think is a really awesome way to be able to marry that together. Opens up a whole new we're not wrong, Angela. Like, look at what we're doing right now. We worked from home as at Insider Perks for the last oh, however long you've been at the company and longer than that. But yes, with COVID, the, some of those digital tools expanded even more. They were always there, but they've been more seamless, easy to use, new companies come out, new software, all that kind of stuff. And obviously Kevin knows that he got rid of his office, but I'm up here in Canada sitting outside doing a show by the river and stuff with my cell phone. But I'm also running, what, I don't know, a couple companies here while i it's interesting how much it's affected real estate whether it's campgrounds and how long our stays have been affected the guests are staying longer because they don't have to get back to work on monday morning at a specific location and again just real estate in general all the airbnbs and the boom with the people who they're not just renting the short-term rentals for a couple days now they're renting them for months at a time it's a whole new class of short-term rentals where people are they used to use them for travel nurses and things like that but now they have them for month-long stays because of all the people who get to work remote i have a question for heather and kevin from both of your perspectives have you noticed an increase in your midweek stays more people either in increasing their stay from the weekend to carry it over or more people actually checking in or in, during the midweek Heather, you go ahead first on that. You're the owner. Yeah, Kevin, you probably have more statistics on it than I do, but I can tell you that used to years ago, we had heavy check-ins on Thursday or Friday and we would get bombarded with checkouts on uh, Sunday or Monday morning. And now we have tons of check-ins every day. So when I'm scheduling staff, I'm, I'm looking at what we have coming in and going out to determine how that schedule will be. And I'm like, it's freaking Tuesday. Why are there 50 people checking in today? <laughs> like, it's it's not the standard Thursday, Friday anymore that you used to see. Yeah. Which I think is a beautiful problem to have. And correct me if I'm wrong, Heather, but I remember we used to have people call us up and say, I want to spend $2,000 a week to run an ad campaign. Just get me midweek guests. And you can't find what doesn't exist, but now it does. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It, we're definitely not complaining. The labor shortage that everybody, I'm sure Kevin's experiencing, is having is the only thing that makes it tough where you're like, a blessing and a curse on both sides. Well, the, the two things that we've seen at the dirt is that it used to be campground owners talking about, hey, help us fill. We're fine on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but help us fill that early week area. You're right, Heather, we've seen that change. There's still some need we've seen on early weeks, but what we've definitely seen is the new weekend is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That is totally booked. And then it's a question of, can you help us do a little bit more on those early weekdays? And then Heather, your comment on the talent, it, it is really tricky when you have a business that people have to physically be there. That is really tough. What's interesting on the dirt, as we hire twice as many people and we double the size of our company right now with all our job openings, we're hiring from all over the U.S. 
And two years ago, we didn't do that. We had to actually be like, hey, are you in Portland or are you willing to move to Portland? And I think about that now and how insanely ridiculous that was because <laughs> we're so productive, so much better at the dirt and being able to hire people from across the country in all different areas is so much more fun. I agree with that. It really expands your talent pool when you're, you're not married to this one specific radius around where your office is. Heather, do you think from a park owner standpoint, do you think that's something that parks could start tapping into if they're looking for someone that can respond to Facebook inquiries, email inquiries, phone reservations, chats, and things like that? Do you think that's something we might see more parks start to do? Absolutely. The interesting part has been we did that last year for my properties for our reservations because we got so bombarded with demand over the last couple of years that my check-in offices cannot keep up with it, meaning the phone won't quit ringing for them to physically talk to the people in front of them. And they essentially become like phone operators because we see the statistics and I'm sure Kevin can talk to us about this on online reservations and how far they've gone up. The difference is those people still call us and ask questions before they make those reservations or after they've made the reservations. So the phones are still ringing. And we have put reservationists for those phone lines in other locations. They could definitely work from home. We haven't found any that are working from home yet as far as that goes, but they're in other office locations that we have to pull them out of the campground and slow the traffic down in that camp office. Yeah, that's, I feel like that's something that more parks, maybe two, three years ago, parks would have completely shuddered at the idea of hiring someone to facilitate that for them. That's not on site, but I feel like that's something that more people are going to have to be open to as it's, they find it more and more difficult to find people that can actually show and up it, for work, and it gives apply for better, the jobs. Yeah, and it gives everybody better service too, because if you're on the, the problem is calling the park, you end up getting put on hold because they're helping the people in front of them which is my staff are taught that's your priority is the person in front of you. So if you're calling, you're put on hold or you can't get through and vice versa when you're standing there in person and they're making a reservation with somebody that's maybe a first time camper or they just have a ton of questions in general, you're standing there for 15 minutes and you're like, dude, I've driven seven hours. I want to go to my site. So it's so much better customer service also. Yeah, the customer service is huge. And we tried, I remember years ago, we tried with some of our larger groups to have them implement live chat. And it was the same problem with talking on the phone is that you can only do one or the other. You're either typing on a keyboard, you're talking on the phone, or you're talking to the person in front of you. And so what Heather's saying makes a ton of sense from, uh, you don't necessarily want to do it, but if you have to do it, and if you can do it better, then it provides better service to the person standing in front of you, which is ultimately the priority. And part of it's perception too. The guest standing in front of you, everybody's got this pet peeve of thinking someone, if they're looking at their phone, like, Angela was prefacing before we started, hey, I'm not looking at you. I've got another screen over here. People think if they're looking at their phone that they're automatically like texting their friends or on social media. And in reality, we have a lot of listings that are on Airbnb for our glamping units. And so the staff are also paying attention to that. So now those people that are in another location can be handling things like that Airbnb so that the guests are getting that attention and not having the, we would even get a review saying the office lady was on her phone. In reality, she's like on Airbnb dealing with another customer, but it's that perception. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any stats around this, Kevin? Have you, 
there's, have there been any research done as far as uh, changes that you've seen during the pandemic with technology or reservations or behavior? If a really great business right now is to go buy campgrounds, which are currently expensive compared to two years ago, but buy ones that do not have booking software and that you would be shocked how many of them are still doing 100% phone and in person and just buy it and hook up booking software and automate it and bring your costs down and bring your prices up and then resell that business. It's basically the Burr method. <laughs> totally the Burr method. It's funny that you say that because when I'm doing acquisitions, I have a syndic I do syndication for RV parks also. And the first question when we're doing acquisition is what software are you using? And Kevin, oftentimes it's not just, are they using the software? It's, are you allowing people to book online? Yep. Because you have not quite as much of a jump as, as the Burr method when you're doing that, but it's pretty close because the online reservations versus not having it, not working anymore. Heather, you want to explain the, explain the Burr method so people know? <laughs> Absolutely. So the Burr method is coined by Bigger Pockets. They have a book by David Green that's really fabulous if you, it's something you're interested in, but it means to buy, renovate, rent, buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and repeat. And so what happens is you'll buy a distressed property. I actually just finished this on a 12-unit apartment complex. So I bought this 12-unit apartment complex. It was in horrible shape and I needed a new foundation and all kinds of stuff. It only cost me like $250,000. But obviously I had quite a few dollars in that next phase on the Burr, which is the renovation. And then you can now rent it at new rates because the, the place is significantly nicer. So you force depreciation um, by having a nicer property that rents for more money to then go out and refinance. And then the beauty of it is that you pull the equity out that you put in for your initial down payment so that you then go out and buy your next property, which is how I've grown my portfolio of RV parks with my initial property. And that same method that Heather is doing with the multi-family um, properties is the exact same thing that there's a lot of opportunity in the campground space right now. I think you know, something interesting too about when you once you implement the reservation systems, there was a, I, there are still people hesitant to use them, but the hesitancy a few years ago and obviously even further back is far more than it is now. I think people now realize that we're resistant before, so they're here to stay. So we need to either get on board with a program here or watch all of our competitors surpass us. But I think that there's a big contrast between people that are using reservation systems and people that are genuinely utilizing them because they all, all of the systems, regardless of your personal feelings of good, bad, et cetera, they all have a lot of different, a lot of different things in them that you can really expand and increase your revenue in a lot of different ways besides just your typical bookings. And things like that. And so many people are resistant to trying, whether it's dynamic pricing or site lock fees or utilizing some of the other things for firewood or your golf cart rentals and things like that. So many people are resistant. They feel like I automate all of that and charge people those fees and that sort of thing. But when you utilize those things, it increases your revenue far more than just simply using a system. I think that well, honestly, Angela, I think part of that is they've come so far. When I bought my first park 11 years ago, and we started out with the software, which you had basically two options back then if you wanted to use software. And it was it took us weeks, sometimes months to train people because they weren't intuitive. Good luck if you wanted tech support. And so anybody who was introduced to those software as their first thing and giving it a chance, those people are even more resistant. 
because that's what they've seen. But the new softwares are nothing like that. They're intuitive. You can train somebody in 48 hours and and they make your business a whole new. Well, I think with what Kevin, part of what Kevin's saying too is we would market for RV parks and yeah. we would see them sold and they turned on good reservation software. They turned on dynamic pricing and lock fees and they did some good marketing that maybe we had counseled them to do for a while, but they weren't sure whether they wanted to spend because they were trying to exit. And all of a sudden they're up 300, 400% in a year or two. It's insane. Yeah. And so what Kevin's saying is, is absolutely correct. There's hundreds of these parks out there still. Yeah. Absolutely. The thing that we saw in this last year, Heather mentioned the Arvik RV conference for campground owners. The difference between that show this year and that show two years ago, this year, two years ago, a couple people had just bought a campground. A couple people are thinking about buying a campground. Most of the people we talked to are campground owners hanging out at our, at our booth with a dirt mobile. The dirt booth this year at Arvik, probably 60% of the hundreds of people I talked to, I have just bought a campground or I'm just about to buy a campground. I literally watched in this two year span, here's the entire new flock of campground owners coming in. The other thing that we've seen at the dirt is we do an annual survey every year because we have the biggest camping community and over 10 million people camp for the first time in this last year. And there was the same kind of stats about two years ago. And we were wondering, was that just a little COVID blip? The answer is no, over 10 million people camp. Not only are more diversity and more communities being represented, but people who are more tech savvy. And think about your own patterns. You don't wanna talk to anybody on the phone. You imagine having to talk to a stranger on this thing, it's scary. You wanna push a button and book, Agreed. that's what you wanna do. So if you're not a campground owner and you're not giving the option as a campground owner for someone to get online and make a reservation without having to talk to a human, you are leaving money on the table. Kevin, yeah. for the dirt, do campground owners put their information on your site or do the campers themselves put parks on the sites? Everyone. So we have the largest database of campgrounds, over 40,000 campgrounds from public to private to RV to private land. Campground owners can put those up and claim them and go into the back end and run and hook up all of their book. And we don't charge any commission for campgrounds to do bookings on the dirt. It's free for campground owners. And on the user side, users can add campgrounds, add pictures, videos, and reviews. The dirt is a, the top community for camping built by campers for campers. Kevin, I know a natural question would come up for me and maybe Heather should be the one asking this, but a uh, natural question would come up for you. If I was a camper hunter would be if both people can control the listings, how do I make sure that what I want there is right as the owner of the campground? So the campground owner is the only one who can claim the listing. We verify it with them and then they go into our backend bookings portal where they can then hook up bookings and get bookings for no additional charge. It's a free service. It's free for campground owners to have a profile, to update a profile and then do bookings. The user side, the, where we stop it on the user side is the users have a right to comment and rate and review the campground. But what's interesting is everyone wants something different. I remember having a user testing session and this camper said, I want to be right next to the bathroom. And I'm like, why would you want to do that? And she says, I have three kids and I can't sit and enjoy a beer and relax on a Saturday. If I had to be walking across the campground back and forth all day long, I need to be able to see them. So every camper wants something different, which is why the dirt focused on crowdsourced pictures, videos, and reviews. Show me the good, show me the bad, show me the ugly. That's what the dirt is all about. So Kevin, we've seen a ton of people try and do what you've done over the last decade. What do you think made it so different? 
major. Here's the biggest difference is we started with community first. We're the only ones that started with community first. We went out, we've raised a lot of money. The Dirt has raised over $24 million now in the last six years. And what we said to our investors are, at first, we're going to focus on community and we're going to crowdsource the most pictures, videos, and reviews, and we're going to win community and we're not going to focus on revenue. We did not focus on revenue for the first five years. No one has ever done that because it's very hard to fundraise for, as you can imagine. But now what's happening is the dirt has hundreds of thousands of pieces of content every single month being uploaded from campers across the U.S. Pictures, videos, and reviews, and data points of campgrounds. Our data is moving so fast that now no one can catch up. It took us six years to get 2 million user-submitted pictures, videos, and reviews. In the last 11 months, we just got another 2 million. Think about how fast that data is going, right? And now we just are hooking up bookings on the Dirt. We just recently, two years ago, launched our subscription service to Dirt Pro if you want to get additional features for $36 a year. But for years, we focused on community. So Heather, that's the biggest difference. What a lot of people do is they put up these directories and they put up bookable campgrounds and they go to try to make money on that. Guess what? They don't have 30 million visits a year. It's very hard to get bookings unless you have 30 million visits or more a year. And it's interesting that you say that because the previous ones that we've been exposed to, they started with the parks. And as a park owner, you only have so much money in your marketing budget. And they all wanted thousands of dollars. Well, all this, And you're like, how many of these things can I give money to? Especially when they aren't already, you're talking about working. You're like, how much money are we going to keep giving these people? So I think you're right. Like We would counsel clients that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Kevin. I'm just, there's a lag. We've counseled clients on that for years about you've only got so much marketing budget. If you're not already taking care of Google and Facebook, why are you on these tiny little sites that get 10 people and 30 people a month and and whatever 100% that is actually going to look at your specific campground listing. But when you scale up to the size of the dirt, all of a sudden it becomes a important factor right up there with the Google. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're creating something that we don't have a choice but to be on because that's where our consumer is going. Right. And that's where, because we focus on community, our users, we have a, a different user signing up for the dirt, visiting the dirt every one second. People can upgrade and pay $36 a year for the pro membership. Every few minutes, we're selling an annual membership of the dirt pro for $36 every few minutes. So think about this call right now. Every few minutes, someone's buying one of those, right? So guess what? We don't have to charge the campground owners anything. That's very different than every other platform out there. Heather, Airbnb, how much do they gouge from you every time you get a booking? Yeah, that's huge. You come, you put your stuff on the dirt. You put your inventory on the dirt. It is bookable and I am not going to charge you. There's no commission addition. There's no fee for it. It's free for campground owners to use. And so what, where we talk to campground owners is go like Heather, you're saying, go where the audience is, go where the big audience is. And because we built community, we have 30 million visits a year on the dirt. All right. Now, Kevin, before we started the show, you asked me if I was going to be nice. And I am. But I'm going to ask you a hard question. Okay. Campground owners have very limited time. As we've discussed with phone calls and chats and things like that and staffing. So does the dirt tie in with other reservation systems or do you have to manually manage that inventory alongside the camp spots and the Astros and the everything else? Yep. Good question. So right now the dirt is integrated with a uh, new booking software, PMS. We're just about done with ResNexus and we're hooking up with Rover Pass as well. 
and others. So if you use those booking software companies, you can have your real-time instant booking availability on the dirt at no additional charge. And if you don't use one of those companies, what's the you, process look for you? You can claim your campground and go into the backend bookings portal and you can put up a request to book. And then you just have to manually be working that system. Okay. Just like an Airbnb then. Yeah. Can I touch upon a point of the biggest thing we're seeing with campground owners over this last year regarding booking reservations? I'd love to get Heather's thoughts on that. Yeah, go ahead. So the biggest thing we saw at when we went to the last Arvik conference is campground owners being really proud as they should be to say, I'm fully booked. I'm full. And I'm yeah. Uh, okay. So most camp what do you think about that? Line? I haven't even asked the question yet. I know where he's going with it. Like, so <laughs> here's the thing. So campground owners, and I was one of them when I bought my first park 11 years ago, I didn't even know I'd bought real estate. Like I had no idea. And I teach courses to people who are interested in buying RV parks or they've just bought their first RV park. And most of those people are coming out of another asset. Can y'all hear my kids? Most of those people are coming out of another asset class. And so they're used to thinking of everything like you're talking about in monetary terms. It's okay. Usually it's my kids, others. <laughs> totally fine. Yeah, you're your kids. You have a really good mic. I have one of those at my house. Okay. And so they don't realize that they own real estate and they don't under, they're not all like these excellent business people. They're fabulous operators. And they know everything imaginable about running their office and customer service and fixing all of the maintenance things at their park. They're so awesome at that. But that doesn't mean that they're actually these really great investors. And what you're talking about in where we'd rather be at like, say, 96% occupancy at a higher rate instead of being like, they, they don't know that concept because that's not really their skill set. They aren't those entrepreneurial investors. What do you do, Heather, when you're full, when you have full occupancy, what's your next move? Raise my rates. What's Raise that? your rates. Quick. Raise your rates. And then what happens is Kevin. your occupancy goes down. Your occupancy goes down, but it's at a higher rate. You're probably making close, if not more than you were before. And then here's the next biggest step. And this is coming back to the booking software is then what you have to do is like what Heather was saying. Go get in front of a larger audience. So what you do is you get to full occupancy, you raise your rate, the audience goes, your occupancy goes down, and then you use a booking software company that can distribute your availability to Airbnb, Expedia, The Dirt, all of the different places where you can go get more bookings. You will fill that up again. What do you do, Heather, when you fill your campground reservations again? Raise your rates. Raise your rates. It's a cycle. And, 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 it, and some people, some campground owners, they have long time customers coming and they don't want to upset them. And that's totally fair. And you know what? Maybe you have to do it really slow. Maybe you have to do it over time. Maybe you do it for $5 per site, something minimal. And everyone can do this at a different pace. But as a campground owner, you should be looking at get in front of a big audience, get to maximum capacity, raise your rates. Get in front of a big audience, get to maximum capacity, raise your rates. And it's about using the right booking software so that you can easily, like what you were alluding to, Brian, you can easily distribute your availability, not just on your own website, 
but to all of these other OTAs like the Dirt, like Expedia, Airbnb. You know, Kevin, the other interesting part about that is I did commercial brokerage for RV parks and I've done about 300 million in, in sales with that. And when you meet the owners, the same owners that have the mentality you're talking about, they still want insane top dollar when they go to sell. But guess what? You're not getting that if you have not implemented these strategies that Kevin's talking about. It's not just the money you're putting in your pocket today. It's what you're going to get when you go to sell, which you don't know if that's going to be tomorrow or 20 years from now, or you're passing it down to your family. But someday you're going to need to have a value and that value that you have in your head for your park that you hear all of your buddies talking about that they're getting. You're not going to get that if you haven't done it. What's going to happen is what we talked about before. They're going to do the burn method and make your property worth double because they're going to come in and do it. Yeah. What Kevin's talking about is not just reservation software. It's social media use. It's responding to your reviews. It's having an app for your campground. Joe can talk about in a second here. Uh, it's, it's about eyeballs, period. And, and one of those ways is reservation software, but it's the services you provide, the customer service, the attitudes that you give people, like hundreds of things. The hotel industry did it a decade ago. And what Heather was talking about is the software in the book, campground booking space, just for the usability aspect, just recently caught up, right? In the last two years, it just got to be like, oh, now you have half a dozen options and they're all really easy. The, next, the next step is distribution. Are you set up as a campground owner to easily distribute all of your availability to other platforms that have bigger audiences. Joe, do you have any, and sorry, my little thing broken. Joe, do you have any uh, stats on, for your apps, for your parks that you work with, discoverability versus people who discover parks that way versus the services that your app provides? For us, our particular apps are not used for discoverability. That's just not the, that's not the goal. The goal is customer engagement and satisfaction. But all of this is a moving target though. Like Kevin was talking about what's popular now, and that is popular now. And it's definitely a trend of purchasing these parts, but the, everything's catching up Two two years ago, when we looked at all of our, our customers, which all of our customers aren't implementing technology, right? They're, they're buying an app just for their park alone. And so two years ago, about 50% of them did not have online reservation. And now most of them do. Two years ago, when we were at a show, people were just starting to talk about raise rates. Now, every show is, has played that out where there are still park owners that are still not raising the rates and they'll say, oh, this again. But the, they're now outliers as opposed to the outliers being the people saying you should be raising your rates. That it, it's such a growing trend and it's growing so fast that I think that I don't know how long it will last because they're getting bought up so quick. Um, the ones that really aren't doing it. They're getting bought up so quick. There's how many investment companies that are coming in and, you know, buying park after park. So here's, here's the interesting aspect of that, Joe, and I want to let you continue in a second, but what you're talking about is super important because even though investors are coming in and buying these properties, doesn't mean investors know how to do marketing or dynamic pricing or all those things correctly either. So we're finding that we're working with some investment groups, and I'm sure it's many more than just the people that we're working with, who a lot of them are coming in and doing things right, exactly how Kevin and Heather are talking about. Some of them are coming in and saying, I just want to cut costs and I don't want to do anything more. Oh yeah, those definitely exist. I, it seems to me, at least most of what we're seeing is the investors that are coming in aren't doing it specifically for campgrounds and are not following it. They're, they've already found the, the method, right? Finding the people that aren't raising their rates, finding the, the people that aren't adding the amenities 
so that they can come in and quickly turn that around, at least during this huge boom of RV. I'm yeah. sure there are some that, that are, they're like, oh, then that's where the money is and they're throwing it around. It just, I haven't seen many of them myself. Most of work with some operators and maybe some of the ones that aren't, maybe I don't know that because they're working with the management company. So. You know what the interesting side of that is, Joe, those people almost all own other real estate asset classes and they see that RV parks or Kevin was talking about like hotels were 10 years ago. And so they're or mobile home parks were 10 years ago. And they're that next thing that people are going to be buying. Mm -hmm. What they don't realize is that RV parks are a full fledged business. Yeah. This is not regular real estate. These are full fledged business operations. So there's all these extra ingredients that go into it. And there's all these different streams of revenue that we have. I have parks that have 10 or 12 different streams of revenue. It's not your normal just we're collecting rent or or whatever they're used to getting, depending on that asset class. So it's a whole new animal for them, learning to actually run a business, not just manage real estate. Well, I guess part of my point was in saying, Joe, is that I agree with you, but I think they're coming in and they're doing what their expertise is or what they research, right? So they're adding amenities, they're redoing landscaping, they're adding sites or they're improving sites or whatever, but they're not doing all the possible things you can do. And so my point is, I think there's going to be a lot of those parks that in five, 10 years are going to be for sale again, that still have improvement opportunities available to them. Oh, for the sure. average campground owner owns a campground for seven years. So you think <laughs> about that cycle is happening all the time and it's going to continue to happen. The other thing that I want to throw out there is one our, on our annual report that's just coming out this month from our survey, 53% of our campers book a reservation, a campground in advance, 53%. So just think about that expense alone. If you're not making a commitment to booking software and like you're guaranteed that expense of the 53% of people calling or walking in to book that campground because they want to book it in advance. And having that software that they can do it in advance is just a super important element. It'll be interesting too, to see if that average length that somebody owns a park, what that looks like now that one, more people are getting involved in the industry and that are from other asset classes or maybe not, but they think, oh, it's easy to own an RV park and then they get in. So it'll be interesting to see because of that factor, but also the factor of there are so many larger groups that are purchasing and seeing how long do they hold on to that property? What are their kind of, what are the key factors that they're assessing? Obviously they're looking at their ROI and, and those kinds of things, but what are the trigger points for them to say, nope, we need to sell this and how does that shift the average length that somebody owns a park. Most of well, those people, even... go ahead, go ahead. Brandon. No, most, most of those people that are buying are, especially at those kinds of prices, if they aren't the Sun and ELSs of our space, they are groups of people that have determined that before they bought the park. It's not the same as what we're used to seeing where it's a, one of the former campers that are like, my retirement job is going to be owning an RV park. And you're like, yeah, dude, this is not a retirement job, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which is what we used to see. But these people are coming in with massive business plans and they have investors that are expecting their money back in year, say, five. So they're going to be selling it whatever year that is. And their goals are to build those parks up and exit to the Suns and ELSs of our space. But they all have different investment strategies. So I think it'll be a different thing than what we're used to seeing with just the people who get sick of it by year seven is their burnout phase. Yeah, I think it's going to change dramatically for that reason, as well as the, it's no longer the mom and pops and, and the larger investment groups. So some of these are coming in, even the smaller investment groups are hiring management companies. It means all of a sudden, maybe if you don't have your pre-planned exit strategy in place, you can maybe hold on to it a little bit longer because it's not something you think about every day.
Yeah, and you can see which groups are going to do what. It depends on if they're rebranding, if they're branding it into their brand. So many of these groups have their own brand. And so a lot of those seem like they're here to stay for, stay, stick around for a while. Whereas some are off, everyone has a different name. No one operates under it. It's actually more as a holding company. It seems like those are the ones that we're talking about that are probably going to get offloaded in five years or so. We've talked a lot about uh, reservation software improvements, revenue, things like that. What else is on your mind as a park owner this time of year, Heather? This time of year, we are solely focused on all of our winter maintenance. So we're going through and I have different team members that I have that I keep for the whole season. They all spend a couple nights in my accommodations and they are supposed to touch everything, touch the ceiling fan, touch the light fixtures, touch everything, stuff that we miss when we're cleaning because we're so busy as everyone else is. So they're doing those winter projects and trying to get those ready for spring. We, this is our busy time because right now, most of our, our new customers are in our old customers are completely redoing their apps. And so they're coming to us and asking us, oh, I have this idea. I want to add this new feature. How do I do that? And that's exactly what we're doing is giving them retraining or giving them the ideas of how to lay out a new feature that they're wanting to, to add to their app. And I would say January through March is just, is really busy for us because of that. Yeah. And Joe, I'm sure it's because this is when we have, okay, that's what on my desk to do for six months. We finally have a break to get that yep. done because exactly. we're all budgeting and planning right now. And so well, part of our planning is things like that. And it's the time that you can spend it, spend time thinking about what you're going to do. I did have a campground owner that came to me and wanted to do firewood delivery on 4th of July morning and start that, but that's not the normal. Normally they're like, okay, why don't we do this? Why don't we set things up in the off season? Get it ready. We'll see the our first couple of weekends how it works and then ramp into full gear. That's how most of them work. So now they're fully thinking out ideas for their next. Yeah, we've been thinking through some automations too, trying to come up with different ideas on automating different aspects of the business since we've been uh, so understaffed and writing SOPs so that we can get ready for the new staff coming in. Yeah, it's all that budgeting, planning, things that we don't get time to do in the season when we're getting our butts kicked. Hey, just to throw out a stat that just came in from the our annual report at the ERT, we surveyed our, our millions of users and we asked, what is the fastest growing season for you? And it winter was by far the long shot, the fastest growing season. 40% 40 of users said that they are camping more in the winter this year than they did in, in the previous years. Spring was a 27% increase, fall was a 15% increase, and summer was a 2% increase. So what does this mean? How your summer was this summer, you're going to get about the same amount of traffic next summer. Where's the opportunity sitting? It's going to be sitting in the spring and the winter for you. Those seasons, yeah, look at this. We're even doing podcasts while this crazy man sits in a bunch of white cold stuff. The season is going out, and that's an opportunity. I think what we're going to start to see is Campground owners, and I've talked to a lot of them, and Heather, you probably know them, and they just, they shut down for the winter. And it's that close down might used to be four months. Maybe it's going to have to be three and a half months next year. Maybe the next year it's going to be three months. And over time, I think you're going to see an evolution there with those shoulder seasons in the winters uh, becoming more and more popular. It's interesting that you say that because we already saw that this year. November and December are normally slower months for me. They're not off season yet, but they're getting there. And we were still overwhelmed in November and December this year. But what's interesting is because a lot of those parks are mom and pop owned, 
they need that time off. They're closing anyway, regardless of their demand. So as we see those institutional buyers and uh, buyers who are more more focused on those numbers and how much money they're bringing in, you're absolutely right. Their seasons are going to get extended and it's not going to be the normal sabbatical that the mom and pops take for three to four months a year. That's the thing. It's going to end up being a choice, right? Just like dynamic pricing is a choice and online reservations are a choice. If you want to, you can, but the pressure is going to continue to build as people in the consumer survey shift as they want to expand more outside uh, throughout all year. And there's going to be opportunities for you to do that. We talked to, uh, what was the name of the campground? Kitty Creek in Michigan. Who Was that them? No, it was, it was Marvel who had the, oh, in Oklahoma, yeah. who added that their added Christmas the light display thing. And they increased their occupancy in their winter cabins by how much was it? Do you remember, Angela? It was, 50%? They, uh, I think it was in the 40% range. And typically that time of year, they're not closed, but typically in that time of year, they're basically at 0% occupancy from yeah. what they shared with us. And this was their first year introducing any of it. And it was pretty, like, it was a great thing for their being their first year, but not anything that they, the sky's the limit for the property that they have and what they can do with it. But yeah, just getting started. And and so you look at like, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. We talked to a few properties where they were looking for ways to expand into the seasons where they would either be closed or would have little to no occupancy this year that added some extra um, fall activities or winter activities just to try. Uh, I think one of the properties, they weren't open for campers, but they added in like a whole winter fest kind of a thing that allowed them to generate revenue in some other ways too. So I think it's really prompting people to get more creative. Obviously, if you're in a really cold climate and your your pipes aren't buried, then there's only so much you can do with how long you can stay open. And that is what it is. But, But yeah, it's really forcing people to get creative. That's what you're seeing when I'm like, I'm up here in Calgary, it's negative 18 Celsius. It's super cold out here, but there's a ton of things to do outside here from ice skating to skiing, to the mountains, to hiking, to snowshoeing, to whatever. And right now the only opportunity is for people to stay in these hotels. Yes, there's limits to pipes being buried and stuff like that. But I think as the years go on, you're going to see some of the larger groups start to solve these problems and figure out how to keep these parks open much longer. Well, we started this conversation talking about our long trips that we just had. The whole reason that we did our trip in the fall instead of in the summer is because we knew that would be occupied during the the summer. There was no way we could get into our customers. Our customers are going to be too busy to talk with us, and there's no way we're getting in. We had even trouble at parts that we did not think would be hard to book in October, in November. We were on the East Coast. We were traveling south. We're trying to keep in that shoulder season area for all parks. And, and we definitely ran into trouble where we didn't think we would at all. And so we definitely see that. And we've actually spoken with our customers since the since we started our app, uh, our product, that they should be using things to get push notifications out to their guests to make that season longer already. This is before COVID. This is before people had the chance to book when they work. Send out push notifications to get people thinking about your park earlier in the year. Send out a push notification in January or February talking about what new things that you've done to pull those people forward. And now they're also getting the ability to do it, which is great. I have a question for Kevin regarding, you were talking about the increase or the percentages of people booking and how that increased based on season. But do you tend to see a certain time of year as winter just as busy for you with uh, new properties being added to the dirt? Or is there a certain time of year where you really see an influx of new things? Oh yeah, it's as you would imagine it. In the winter, we'll have a bigger influx of campgrounds coming on, signing on, claiming their campground profile page, and then 
hooking up bookings that they can get for free on the dirt. And then in the summer, you'll see a bigger push of users, right? Users out there submitting campground pictures, videos, and reviews. Like I think we'll get on the dirt, guessing these winter months here, but it's somewhere around 50,000 users submitted pictures, videos, and reviews per month. I think in July, we had around just in the month of July, over 200,000 pictures, videos, reviews, and tips of campgrounds from users across the country. 200,000 in the month of July. Like that is thousands and thousands of campers across the U.S. at a campground. They voluntarily, we don't geofence and stalk people on the dirt. They voluntarily open up their app at a campground and they give us what's called a field report where they answer all of these questions. So that's how we see it of winter time-ish is a little bit more popular campgrounds coming on and getting set for the season, as you'd imagine, and summertime-ish, it's the users are making the move. But as I mentioned before, we're seeing that shoulder season is shrinking and we're seeing that activity on the dirt year round go up and up. I wanna know what that field report looks like so park owners understand when they're walking around and about to yell at a guest. They can just yeah. ask, are you writing a field report for the dirt before I say anything? That's hilarious. If you walk up to any campground, and you have the Dirt app on your phone, and you open the Dirt app, it will then know you're at a campground. It'll pop up and say, hey, it looks like you're at a campground. Can you give us some information about this campground? And the field report, one of the things we added on it is, can you tell us what your cell service provider is? And let's take a little signal strength. We had, just by launching this summer, we had nearly 30,000 campers across the U.S. open their phone at a campground and tell us their internet, uh, their cell service provider and their cell service strength. We're now developing maps on our Dirt app of cell service providers at the, the strength of different cell service providers at campgrounds. And that data is more accurate than what the cell service companies are putting out themselves. Why? Because we have campers, thousands of them, actually on the ground at these campgrounds telling us exactly what it is, not some marketing person from the cell service company say, you lie. Yeah. We've all known that for years, those maps are not yeah. accurate, but it's definitely, that's definitely a hugely useful thing. I remember when we first started the company, we were traveling around and I had a Verizon hotspot and an AT phone and an AT&T hotspot. I thought about getting a Sprint and a T-Mobile one at one point, because depending on where you are in the country, obviously it's improved over time, but yeah. yeah. I think that can be extremely valuable too, as especially now that so many people are working remotely and traveling in the midweek and working where they're staying and things like that. If the Wi-Fi isn't great at the property or there's just a lot of, maybe it's good, but there's just so many people using it. I think it's really helpful because I forget which report it was. I remember reading a stat at one point of how much cell service and internet strength was playing a role in the decision-making of someone staying at a property. And so I can see that being really valuable. Yeah, I think it was guest perspective. part of the North American Camping Report, and they were talking about how much longer guests stay also when they've got it, those things. Yeah, yeah, it increased, what, it increased, I think, their average stay by, yeah, by a couple of days just by having better, better service. So, yeah. And Joe, Joe, you must deal with that of, you know, I think you should download the Dirt Pro and get our huh. self-service maps and see where self-service is working, and that's campgrounds you should go talk to to drum up some more business for your and we go out, I definitely will. We ran into that this, uh, this fall and looked to the campground. It has a lot of stuff. They have a lot of going on and they do some stuff with technology. And I booked there 
And two days before I got there, they said they have zero cell service and they have no Wi-Fi. I realized that and we looked, everything was booked on that weekend. It was unfortunately a weekend. So find anything anywhere else in New Jersey around Halloween. And we were stuck going there. Luckily it was the weekend, but uh, it made it really difficult. One morning we had to drive into town to work. And so it, it would definitely have come in handy. So I think it might have to be for our next trip. We're thinking about spending a month in Ontario this summer. So a little, uh, Got a stat in. Go ahead, Kevin. Sorry. I just got a stat in for one of our staff because we we're talking about the cell service. And they said that 23 from our, from the DIRTS annual survey, 23.8% of campers worked from a campsite in 2021, up 16% from the previous year. So you're already seeing a jump from the pandemic starting of people working from campgrounds and working from the road just like all three of us did in the last six months, but then it made even, it almost doubled again. So cell service is, it's becoming more and more important. It's almost a third of your customers now are going to want sure. to be able to know what your cell service is. And, and, and as you look at this, as you think about it from a park owner perspective, and I'm sure Heather can speak to this too, as you're evaluating what you're presenting to your guests on your website, social media, reviews and questions and answers and things like that. It's thinking about things like they want to know what the cell service is. And so, of course, you're not going to take the place of the dirt with 30 plus million people going to your website, but by providing a little piece of that information under your frequently asked questions section on your website or wherever it is, that and the dozens of other little tidbits to help have a better experience only enhance what you're offering. Right. Because if they, everyone expects that you have it and they expect that what you have is perfect and comparable, if not better than what they have at home. So if you are not offering them that service, you better be telling them ahead of time and you're still gonna get bad reviews even if you've already told them. One thing I'll put out about bad reviews, I had a really interesting thing from a campground owner say this to me at Arvig, is he said, he goes, I get more people coming to my campground because of this person that left me a one-star review and a big complaint. I said, really, why? He's like, they come into my office and they say, who responds to campgrounds? Who responds to the comments when someone leaves you a review? And he said, oh, I do that. And he's, I'm coming here. I'm here because of the response you gave to that one-star reviewer who is totally ridiculous. You professionally told them why they're ridiculous and you said it straight for me. So thank you so much. So keep that in mind, campground owners, a one-star review doesn't necessarily mean now you're going to have lost business. The response you give to it is incredibly important. Think about your own patterns. When you a Yelp listing of restaurants or other sort of listings that have star ratings, or you're looking at campground listings on the dirt. What you do as a normal human is you scan them really quickly. You read four or five reviews. You instantly say, I think that person's crazy. These three people all seem to be saying the same thing. That's where my opinion gets stamped. So uh, remember that with reviews, your response is important and a one-star review could actually mean more business. Yeah. When we, from the insider perk side of things, we respond to reviews for, I don't know, over 130, 140 parks across the country and in Canada. And that's one of the things that we tell our clients is you're not responding to the negative reviews. You're not responding to the person that left it really like you most likely already lost them you've probably already also had an in-person conversation with them and a phone conversation and an email thread and now they're coming here to leave this review too they're probably gone you're responding for the people that are reading it that might want to come and visit your property and how you handle that is a reflection of how you operate your business and it's a snapshot that they're getting before they've set foot 
before they probably even made it to your website for that matter, if they're, especially if they're going through Google or something. So yeah, you're never really responding for the person that's leaving the unkind reviews. Uh-oh, I think, oh no, I think we lost Brian. We're in Center Perks and- uh, yeah. oh. <laughs> oh, he's back. Yeah, I'm back. He's so what back. I, he's well, back. my phone's gonna die now. Okay, he's, I'll try and let him back in if he pops back up. We are just about out of time. Does anybody, or would anybody like to say anything to wrap things up? Any last uh, words for today's show before we take off? I, I would just like to give a, a thought to campground owners that it's about distribution when you're picking your booking software. We're not a booking software company. We work with all the booking software companies. So here's a neutral statement. The future of campground reservations is about having a booking software company that can distribute to lots of companies like The Dirt, like Expedia, like bookings.com so you can get in front of more audiences. That's one thought I would leave to campground owners. Very good. Heather, do you have anything that you wanted to say before we head off for today? I think Kevin did a great job. We'll see everybody the third week of every month. Yeah, sounds sounds good. Oh, wait, oh, maybe is Brian back? I honestly... Back. Can you hear me? I don't have video, but my phone died outside. So I can't switch to my laptop. But anyway, yeah, great show. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. Uh, sorry I can't be on video to say goodbye to you, but appreciate you, Heather and Joe, joining us. As always, we're looking forward to seeing you guys uh, next week, Angela. And we're going to have a continuing, hopefully, good conversation here about what's important to campground artists to focus specifically on that. So I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Thanks everybody so for joining us. Bye guys. Have a great rest of the week. See ya. Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com. 